Leadership File on Premier. Welcome to the show which talks to Christian leaders about the topics that really matter. I'm Andy Peck. Have Britain's political leaders lost touch with the electorate? That's the view of my guest this week on the Leadership File, Mal Fletcher. Mal is the chairman of 2020 Plus, a London-based think tank on social change and leadership innovation, helping business, communities and individuals to deal proactively with future change. He's a social commentator and futurist, a keynote speaker and broadcaster. He believes that the recent votes for UKIP at the early summer uh, European elections and local elections are a sign not of a lurch to the right, but of a disenchantment with Britain's political leaders. So welcome uh, back to Leadership File, Mal. It's uh, good to have you back. You've been on before, so just to encourage uh, listeners to listen back to the um, the On Demand uh, show, which talks uh, in more detail about the sort of things you get up to. But maybe you can explain, first of all, your analysis of the European and local elections. Yes, well, I think that voters demonstrated, Andy, in those elections uh, a sense of disconnection from the major political parties and a disillusionment by the leadership they provide. And I think in some respects, that may be a carryover from the great British house cleaning of 2010-2011. That was a period when we saw every major foundational institution in society being called into question, from the banks during the you know, banking crisis to Westminster with MPs' expenses. Uh, the same thing applied with the courts and police service following the riots, the press and media with the phone hacking disaster, and even the church in terms of the ongoing talk about uh, child abuse. But since all of that, I think this disillusionment with politics in this country has become even more personal. Uh, that is to say, the leaders of the parties themselves are seen as being out of touch with people's everyday concerns. And issues like the immigration management issue, the future shape of Europe, uh, these help to explain why largely untested parties like UKIP make significant gains. Right. So, so you, you, you know, it's not your view particularly that that it's because they're right-wing that we become, if to use the word, fascist in our, in our views? No, not necessarily. I think that uh, there's a perceived elitism, uh, which you touched on in your introduction, that affects the leaders of all the major political parties. I think voters of all persuasions have begun to ask questions like, how can PPE graduates, people who've studied philosophy, politics, economics, who become MPs or staffers straight out of university possibly understand my everyday concerns. Right. Um, I mean, we've seen David Cameron, uh, you know, suffer from a perceived elitism. It's a charge that's often levelled against him, fairly or not. Um, he does tend to, it seems, surround himself with people from the same sort of privileged background that he's enjoyed. That may be natural on a human level, but I think on a political level, people expect a PM to be trying to represent a broader society. Um, at times, he may be out of touch with his own party. He makes decisions a lot without much debate, it seems, or without consultation. I think the marriage so-called debate was an example of that. Sure. Yeah. You've got Ed Miliband on the Labour side, uh, seen by even many of his supporters as being very bright, but perhaps a little too policy wonkish to make a credible PM. You've got Nick Clegg, who in debates, at least, appears to want to talk down to people at times. He feels, or he seems to feel exasperated when people can't see things his way. And we've got Nigel Farage now, who, who may be open to the same charge of elitism if his history as a city commodities trader ever becomes the story. So it's, it's something right across the political spectrum rather than uh, aimed at one particular side of politics. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, the, the elections across Europe had a, had a very low turnout with less than 
50% of many countries' electorates turning out. Um, so would you agree that it's, it's, it's a kind of pervasive disillusionment with the political process as well across Europe, or are you focusing just in, in, in the UK in your thinking? Well, my thinking is predominantly UK, but I travel a lot and speak a lot across Europe, and I think that when it comes to the EU elections, as opposed to the national elections, there is always a much lower turnout of voters, as you say, Europe-wide. Uh, and I think there's a lack of engagement with the majority of the European electorate in the EU process for three reasons. People, first of all, don't understand what exactly the EU's central institutions do, aside from building an ever-growing mountain of bureaucracy. Secondly, I don't think people are aware of how much of their daily lives are affected by decisions taken by politicos and bureaucrats in Brussels and Strasbourg. And thirdly, I think people generally don't understand why they have to pay so much money to Brussels, given that in a direct sense it provides none of the major public services that we need for everyday life. And I think with Europe's future, the big question going forward will not be financial. It will be philosophical or political. Europe has to decide whether it wants to remain a trading pact between connected but independent states or continue down what looks like a road towards a single political economic unit, a form of uh, super state. And and that decision, that direction seems to be favoured by many of the major leaders within the EU, but it's raising concerns in the broader electorate, even in pro-European nations like Germany. Um, in other countries that were harder hit by the recession, such as France and Greece, we're finding opposition to the EU being expressed in growing support for some of these far-right political parties, such as France's National Front. Um, the leader of that party has said that she wants to build an alliance to prevent any progress toward European unity to restore the power of nation states. And that's not too far from what many average voters would like to see in terms of the future of the EU. Uh, the challenge is that with parties like the National Front, that's accompanied by other ideas that are less palatable, such as overly restrictive policies on immigration. Right, right. Um, and, I mean, some, some Christians would say that one of the, the, the key concerns uh, with, with European-wide made laws is that the the influence of local people on those laws is is reduced, and of course, although it's it's perhaps laughable, but Christ, you know, the UK is in quotes the most Christian, one of the more Christian of uh, in terms of its background anyway of of all the European nations. And so, some Christians in the UK think that's part of the problem is that we 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 don't have any say over how Brussels organises our lives, and some of those laws are, are often very godless in their in their outlook. Yes, I suppose that's true. I guess we have to be careful putting, quote, Christians into one particular voting block because, sure. of course, unlike America, we're not seen that way, and that's a good thing. Hmm. There are diversities of view within the Christian church. But I, I, I take your point, and I think, that, uh, I think that you're right. For a lot of people, that's the way it's seen. And that's especially shown in stark contrast or stark relief when you consider we're living in what I would call the age of transparency, uh, what I mean is that the digital age, the age of the Internet, has given rise to what I would call a trust revolution or a desire for trust on a higher level. In the business world, for example, we've seen the emergence of things like person-to-person -person retail with companies like eBay, all built on the currency of trust. Uh, the same thing has spread to micro-enterprise lending with Kiva.org and other groups like that that allow you to lend to the poor in other parts of the world. It's spread to crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, as it's called, a new kind of venture capitalism, all based on trust. So I think people now put a high premium on trust. They're wary of top-heavy bureaucracies, top-down hierarchies. 
Uh, they want leadership that earns the right to be heard, that is accessible, that has integrity and, and a commitment to dialogue, commitment to pursuing shared goals. Um, and that's very difficult for politics in the way that it has been running in the last 50, 60 years. Sure. Have you, have you got any um, particular solutions to, to, to the crisis that, that's faced? I realise that's, that's a very difficult uh, uh, question to ask given you know, the time we have available, but any, any particular thoughts? Well, it depends if you're asking the question about politics per se or leadership mm. generally. I, I suppose if I take the latter tack for a moment, because it applies back to politics, mm. I think there is, because of this engagement with things like digital media, and that's just one part of what is happening, um, our growing engagement with things like the internet is giving us a much greater taste for interactive experiences, what the gamers online call the architecture of participation. Um, you know, participation was given a huge boost by the introduction of what we call the wiki, W-I-K-I, which is the piece of code that allows you and I to alter or add to a website as we use it, as in Wikipedia. And for leaders, that, that means that, you know, people who are members, whether it's a political party or a business or a church, indeed, need to be given an active role in helping to shape direction, helping to shape projects and strategy. People want to feel that they're part of an ongoing, growing conversation with organizations and the leaders that head them up. And so in politics, as in other areas, we, leaders need to become much more about outsourcing their strategic development and really paying close attention to what their people are, what the issues are that people are engaging. I, I don't think British politics is becoming more institutional. I think it's becoming more issues related and leaders need to be more aware of what their constituents are saying. Right. And, and, you know, for many of them, this is, they have, a, they have a membership, they have an annual conference, but I don't know to what degree that facilitates the process of, of, of members of parliament understanding better the grassroots of, uh, you know, issues that, uh, that, that exist. Yes, that may be true. I think that conferences tend to be drawn from people that pretty much already agree with you, don't they? And so, you know, you've got the really core members going to a party conference, um, whereas there, there is a, the party leader, if he or she is to be prime minister, they must represent the whole of the nation. Sure. Uh, and so there's a wider constituency to be sought out. And I, I think that on even on issues like uh, the independence referendum for Scotland, a lot of people on David Cameron's side of politics can't understand why he actually gave that opportunity. Uh, there was no great necessity for it in, in the eyes of many. And uh, his speed in uh, putting the case for the no side, for the staying within the union side, has been a little bit on the slow side. Um, he hasn't been very proactive. So people wonder, you know, why are they making these decisions? The decision on, on marriage. There was promised a marriage debate, a widespread public debate. It didn't happen in many people's eyes, even in Parliament there was limited debate. So again, there's this sense of, are we being governed by an elite or are we being governed by people who get it that in the age we live in, people need to feel they're part of the dialogue? Well, you're listening to The Leadership File with me, Andy Peck. I'm joined this week by Mel Fletcher. Mel is the chairman of 2020 Plus, and we'll be back just after this. Welcome back to Leadership File with me, Andy Peck. I'm joined this week by Mel Fletcher. Mel is the chairman of 2020 Plus, a London-based think tank on social change and 
leadership innovation, helping businesses, communities and individuals to deal proactively with future change. Uh, we were talking before the break of, uh, of the way in which uh, many um, uh, politicians are, are being increasingly um, aware that uh, that Christian that um, uh, that voters are not um, uh, supporting them in the way that um, that they might like, and that there's been a kind of a lurch to the right. Uh, at least um, that's what the, the the commentators say. Mal, Mal is saying that actually there's a disenchantment with Britain's political leadership. So so moving on um, to, to to think about Christian leadership, Mal, if we may. Um, when you were on, on the show before, you were talking about uh, some of the trends that, it, that existed, and you mentioned that in uh, before the break. This, you know, we're in an age of transparency where uh, individuals typically uh, prefer to to learn from their peers about products rather than, um, you know, depending upon marketing, and or at least they don't trust marketing, they don't trust institutions so much. And what what are the other kind of trends that uh, Christian leaders need to be aware of um, uh, in in as we go forward? Well, first of all, Andy, I need to say right up front, I'm not much a fan of the word trend because to me and to many, I think it suggests something fairly shallow. Uh, the word shift is a good one. Because okay, I think thank it, you. Uh, uh, I'm not correcting you. I'm no, no, I'm very happy to go with shift. <laughs> <laughs> shift shift tends to, mm. uh, I think, denote something a little mm. deeper and um, social change doesn't happen, you know, in an instant. It doesn't happen okay. as a result of something short term. It happens mm. when people learn to make different decisions and when enough people do that, you end up with a social movement, which is where change begins. I think one of the social movements that's happening is in terms of uh, mass communication giving rise to mass collaboration. So people today get excited about the possibility of cooperating with other individuals or other groups to solve perhaps seemingly intractable problems. Um, As a result, people tend to be drawn to organisations, I would say including churches, that offer the promise of alliance building. Um, the the globalising impact of the internet has made people impatient with a type of closed innovation cultures that once ruled uh, the world. People are looking for groups, including, I would suggest, faith groups, that shun the old you-and-me-against-the-world mentality, almost a victim mentality, in favour of a mindset that says, well, it's you and me and the world against this problem. What can we do about it together? How can we promote what the civic leaders call the common good? And so I think in church leadership, wise leaders look to build alliances where they can uh, or alliance seeking into their organizational DNA. They are looking for alliances in the community to solve uh, real needs. Sure. And uh, there has been uh, signs of that. Um, uh, We've had on the uh, program Roger Sutton with the uh, who heads up the gather movement. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you know, there's there's the signs across across the UK of Christians from all denominations gathering together to pray, and often uh, as a result of that, the outworking is is of of collaboration, just 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 the way that you suggested. Yes, I mean it probably needs to start within the church community, doesn't it, with us learning to build alliances together? But I think, as you suggest, there's a wider application. We need to. You know, people are looking anyway for church leaders who can build alliances outside of the church's front door, you know, because there are needs in each of our cities, but we on our own cannot meet. Even if we pulled all of the churches into a city, into a cause, we can't always do all that needs to be done. We need the wisdom of others. We need the resources of others. And I think it's a marvelous opportunity then for us to become salt and light, to to influence those with whom we are uh, equal partners in alliance. And if you want to wax theological for a moment, there's a clear difference for me between covenant and alliance. 
if you study the scriptures of the, the Christian faith, there's a difference between an alliance which is built around common task, common pragmatic goals, and covenant which is built around deeply held shared values at the very core level of human existence and belief. So, you know, we need to separate in our minds that there's a time, there's a place and a way to build covenant with others of like faith, but building alliance can be with those who are not of like faith but share a common pragmatic goal. Now, um, many, many Christian leaders will be listening, and um, you know they're, they're focused on the the immediate. So often, they are. Um, you know, there's a, a in many churches a, almost a crisis a week, uh, pastoral needs perhaps if they're church leaders. Um, uh, have you got any thoughts on on how how Christian leaders can stay in touch with the kind of things you're talking about? Because it's it, it requires kind of big picture thinking that 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 shifts them out of the the, the kind of grind of daily life to remember uh, the bigger the bigger issues and some of the the the, um, the things that are happening outside their community yes uh, I think part of it is uh, I mean there are simple disciplines like just reading as widely as possible I'm of the belief that for most of us who are leaders of one kind or another we don't read enough and we don't read widely enough which limits our worldview uh, and a, a very narrow worldview is a worldview that is largely ignored uh, in a world that is becoming more and more globalized and more, quote, unquote, aware of its global environment. So reading widely is important. I think uh, reading beyond perhaps the normal book list that's given out at a Christian conference, um, challenging oneself to think about issues that we might not normally want to think about, um, Mixing with people who don't necessarily agree with us is a very good way to keep ahead of the change curve. I often ask leaders, you know, who have you had lunch with recently that doesn't agree with you on something important? Because dissent is not the same as disloyalty, provided it's given from the right attitude. Um, so they're just two things, you know, reading widely, mixing more widely, that keep our worldview stretched. Uh, and I find, too, that um, in my own leadership experience over 32 years now of of both being a social commentator and a Christian minister, uh, who, albeit doesn't pastor a church, but has a lot to do with pastors, I find that it's, it's uh, so important that we just keep um, uh, stretching ourselves and that we keep engaging with the future of our city. The most urgent question any of us can ask in business, in media, even in church life, is what kind of city do I want to live in 10 years from now? What can I do now to set that in motion? Fantastic. And you yourself, of course, have um, has recently um, published a book, so maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about that and uh, and how um, listeners can get a copy. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And, yeah, <laughs> fa Fascinating Times is really um, a series of essays. It's an anthology of essays that have been written over five years on major issues within Britain and Europe, uh, everything from political issues right through to social issues and everything in between. It is more about the social aspect. I'm not a political pundit as such. So it's about the more social areas of change, how we've changed in the way we relate to one another, how our social ethics and values might have shifted, how our technology has affected the process of leadership. That's a big one. All of that is included in this, uh, this book, which has 48 different uh, editorials in it. All of them were written for magazines or media presentations that I've done at some time or other. It's available from Amazon, particularly Amazon Kindle. It's an e-book, so uh, people can download it on any digital device. You don't have to have a Kindle, but it's available through Amazon, and it's called 
fascinating times. Excellent. And um, just a question about you. You, have, you obviously uh, uh, broadcast in in all sorts of settings, and I'm just interested in in whether you know. In, you've t- talked about you know being work in this work for 32 years, and particularly in the UK more recently. What sort of perception the church and Christians have is is that some of the some of the, um, the the Christian media would would say that things are getting tougher for Christians. Would that be something that you'd agree with? Interestingly, I was asked a similar question on the BBC just a week ago. Uh, the question was put to me as an unusual question because I'm not normally there to talk about faith issues. Sure, I'm sure. there to talk about social issues. But the interviewer happened to know that I was a Christian. Said, "You're a Christian. Do you feel like you are persecuted hmm. for your faith?" And I said, "No, I don't. Uh, I think." To call oneself persecuted in our part of the world is both disingenuous and it dishonors those like Miriam, Ibrahim in Sudan Indeed. who yeah. are persecuted. But it also is a bad move for a faith community in a strategic sense. Mm. You can't engage a society that you've already declared your enemy. Right. Yes. And uh, I, don't think there's, I think there's a cultural bias at times mm. against faith generally because secularism has become the default position in many areas. Mm. But I don't see that as being the same as an active or institutional opposition. I think people are still willing to engage with people of faith if we're prepared to talk in terms of worldview and its and its impact on issues rather than dogma. Sure. And so, because uh, cl- classically, obviously, the media will, will focus upon the church being against stuff that they regard as normal, such as gay marriage and that sort of <laughs> those sort of issues uh, maybe abortion or whatever um and your you know your 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 argument is well actually no we need to we need to stick to the bigger worldview not that those things are unimportant but but you know actually win our win our right to, to to be heard yes in a sense we need without without backing away from those difficult issues i think that uh, you know there are those on one extreme who say well you know we're here to preach quote good news but my response to that is, well, good news doesn't always sound like good news hmm. if one is prepared to reject it. That is to say, if good news just sounded like good news, Jesus might not have ended on a cross. You know, So there's a sense in which we have to present grace with truth. The two need to go together. Um, but we need to do it in a context of talking about a wide range of issues, not just the moral issues. I think, for example... Christian worldview has a lot to say about the introduction of technology and the human mind, human thinking, human behavior. But we find very few people talking about that. You know, we, we tend to want to only talk about the purely moral issues. And I think we, may, we need to stretch ourselves a bit. Splendid. Well, man, it's been fantastic to chat with you. Just as we, 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 we finish, just remind us of your, your own website. And obviously leaders can, uh, you know, can sign up and get, uh, get regular uh, updates from you so um, how, how would they do so yes they can go to 2020plus.net that's the number 2020 followed by the word plus p-l-u-s dot net 2020plus.net you, as you say andy you can sign up for leadership editorials that come out every couple of months for social comment it's a little more frequent and uh, there's all sorts of video audio leadership lectures from around the world some great resources for leaders yeah it is very much a very i just recommend it and of course the the book fascinating times that is one that people need to to get hold of by going to uh, particularly to um to amazon.kindle uh, and uh, downloading it there so thank you so much mel for for your insights and for for, for standing in the public place on behalf of of so many christians and uh, and giving a voice for, for for god so thank you so much Oh, it's a pleasure, Andy. Thank you for having me. Well, you've been listening to Leadership File with me, Andy Peckover. Uh, joined this week by Mal Fletcher, 
the chairman of 2020 Plus, a London-based think tank on social change and leadership innovation, helping business, communities and individuals to seek proactively with future change. Do uh, log on to Premier's own website and you can get archive recordings of the Leadership Fund, including this one, in due course. I look forward to your company again next Sunday at 3.30. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Leadership File on Premier. Andy Peck serves as a tutor at CWR, a Christian charity whose courses and publications aim to apply God's word to everyday life. Contact him via email apeck at cwr.org.uk. 